Well, hey, good morning, folks. Good, morning. good to see you. Oh, we can do way better than that. Good morning. Uh, good morning, guys. Hey, my name is John Wagler. If this is your first time here, I'm part of this team and uh, thrilled that you're spending a portion of your uh, originally rainy Sunday, Sunday here. Um, I think it's going to be sunny here just on your way out, but I'm just thankful that you're here. We're in this series called Something is Happening. Uh, again, it was supposed to be a six-week series. This is week 13. And so we are uh, looking at this idea of revival and uh, moments of revival. And what's interesting uh, if you're at all familiar with revival moments, it's often people look at it as this like significant moment in time, um, but it's not about a moment. Like if, if, if a revival is really a revival, there's this long lasting impact. Uh, if it's just this little blip, it's just this small little moment, all right? So a real revival isn't just about a signature moment. It's about something that happened that builds into something that's happening and it continues on and there's some kind of base thing that happens. In every single kind of revival, something is put to death so something else can be resurrected, okay? And so we've been talking about this because sometimes when people talk about revival, we'll be like, we need a revival in the land. We need to go back to the way things like used to be. And I'm like, what what do you want to go back to? Right? Because like, are there some things that were good back in the day? Sure, but there are also some really awful things, right? Every era has this. And so it's understanding that within the context of revival, what we're really looking at is what needs to be put to death so God can resurrect what he wants to resurrect. And so uh, we've been hovering in the book of Acts uh, for, again, for the last two and a half, uh, three months. And uh, we've been looking at how the church started and what are some of the commonalities and how the church started and and what does that look like for us today? And so we've gone through a bunch of different things uh, each and every week. But uh, this week, I was just thinking about this idea of freedom. We sang about that in the uh, first song. And it's about this idea of freedom. Freedom, to, to be fully human, to, to live free. Uh, we, Lacey and I were on a retreat for a few days and, and up north of Baltimore. And part of the retreat with several other couples was uh, we were on, on the Inner Harbor yesterday. And we got to Fort McHenry where the national anthem was, was written. And I was thinking about how, you know, there's the line in there, uh, the land of the free, right? And is, is that, was that really true? No, not for everybody, right? Not everyone was, was really free. The, the idea is wonderful, um, but that's not like what was actually true. This idea of like living free is, is something we all innately desire, to, to live free, to be fully, fully human. And uh, sometimes when we think about what does it mean to live free, we think, oh, if I could just do what I want to do, is that living free? No, thank you, Mark. Um, and, and it's not, right? It's, it's not actually living free to, to have this idea of like, if I could just do what I want to do, then I'll be perfectly free. How many of you guys have made th- decisions in your life where you did what you wanted to do, but it put you in bondage of some kind, right? It was like, man, I really regret the decision I make, but you were free to make that decision. And it's like, so it's not about like being able to do whatever we, we want. Actually, the most free people you know have incredible boundaries in their life. And so it, this idea of being fully human and fully free is, is a pivotal element to what we begin to see in revival. Um, how many guys have seen the Barbie movie? Yeah, yeah. Um, personally, stock up on Barbie. Like, it was like, uh, uh, it was really good. Uh, it was so good. Really smart, well-written, um, funny, all those things. Uh, interesting social commentary, whatever. Uh, but part of the beauty of that movie was this theological concept, essentially, of what does it mean to be fully human? 
What does it mean? Uh, and there's a part, I don't, I don't think I'm giving anything away. Maybe I'm, well, I won't. I won't give it away. But there's a part uh, of, of, of the story that uh, you're not really fully human until you understand uh, who you were created to be by your creator. And this conceptual, like, like in this movie, I'm sitting there, like, and Lacey and I were there and, uh, with uh, two friends of ours, and, and Matt and I talked about it on the podcast, and they were just like, man, just like to process that reality in and of itself is like really deep. To understand to be fully human and fully free is to fully understand who you were designed to be by the God who created you. That's how you become free. And so our story that, you know, we just sang about like the story in Blessed Assurance, is like our story is part of this massive story designed by God. And until you understand that story and embrace that story, like you'll never actually be free. You'll be living some kind of story, but it's not the story you were designed to live. And uh, you won't experience the depth of humanity that God desires us to. Uh, in Acts chapter two, uh, I love this part because um, we begin to see, uh, you know, in our, in our context, sometimes being free is like, man, if you prosper, you're free, right? Uh, if, if, man, you get that job, that promotion, you're making the money you desire, it, God must be on your side, right? How, how many of y'all know that's not true? Okay, I just want to get that out of the way because sometimes people are like, you know, like, man, they were really blessed by God. Did you see how much money they're making? I'm like, let me tell you something. Can God bless someone in that way? Yeah. Of course. But the disciples were not blessed in that way. The disciples were not blessed. Their early church, they were not blessed in that way. So this, even this concept of prosperity and freedom and prosperity being linked into to God's blessing in and of itself, that, that's not real. That's not biblical. Uh, can prosperity be an evidence sometimes of God blessing people? Absolutely. But that's not a biblical concept. That's the only way. And so even like how we think through some of these thing, things about freedom and humanity and what, how we're living our lives, it's so important to see, all right, in the early church, when they were linked into the, the Spirit of God and witnessed the Spirit of God, how, what were they like? And so in one of my favorite passages in Acts is actually in Acts chapter 2. And it says this, they said, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the what? Can you guys read? All right, ready? To what? All right, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They did what? Hmm. In their homes and, and did what? With glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This idea of the favor of God is like, how are they doing that? They're eating together. They're breaking bread together. They were in communion together. And then the Lord added to their number daily those who were being, what? Saved. Hmm. You know, this passage is often, we've talked about it before, like with generosity, but I'm not talking about that today. Because there's something conceptually about this story about breaking bread, about eating together. Uh, about uh, in, the, in the midst of this, this, this concept of, of salvation being saved and connected to breaking bread and eating together and, and what this looks like communally that is a part of this major story in scripture. 
See, sometimes we think, oh, for me, like, I love the idea of salvation, or I love the idea of God saving, or God making me free, or whatever you want to, however you want to look at it. And we don't understand that part of this story is it's not just about us and this own personal decision. It's this communal thing that happens together. Man, you, you can't experience real freedom by yourself. You can't do it. That what we begin to see consistently throughout the Bible, and in particular when the church was starting, it's like, man, it's about community. It's about community. And that there's this larger story uh, to be a part of. You see, when they did this, they, they were called um, agape feasts. And there were these big love feasts, basically. And when they would get together like this, they would get together for hours. It wasn't just a quick little meal. They would get together and they would prepare the meal together. Uh, they would sit down. They would have these deep, rich theological uh, discussions. They would talk about life. They're, they're caring for one another. They're talking about how they can uh, kind of recenter themselves on the mission that Jesus has put everyone else on. And in the midst of that, they begin to see like, oh, here's how we can help this person. Here's how we can uh, impact this person. And here's what we have to do in the community in front of us. And you know who else we should invite into this? And it's this constant state of trying to build this communal atmosphere. Uh, this eating together, this breaking bread together. And in the midst of that, they would take uh, the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or communion, uh, depending on how you, were, uh, grown, uh, how you grew up with it. Uh, but they would all get together and do this. How many of you guys have ever been a meal that took like hours? Aren't they wonderful? I'm not like at a restaurant, it takes hours, you're like, this is miserable. But like, it's like a, uh, a meal that where you're, you're getting together with friends, uh, Lacey and I, um, just experienced this recently, where we were with a, a large grouping of, uh, of our friends and uh, had this big crab pick, and I don't, I don't get into that part of it, but like uh, she does, she has bloody hands and everything from the crabs, but uh, the, it's this long meal that happens, and in the midst of it, in the midst of it, uh, some unbelievable conversation was happening. At one point, I was just sitting with uh, six guys, and we're having kind of this rich theological discussion, and uh, talking about economics, and, and the Bible, and like a whole bunch of, of different things. And, and in, this, in this moment, I just remember just like sitting back and being like, man, this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. Uh, we're sitting here talking, and it's like a deep rich conversation and challenging one another. We had different perspectives on things and, and everything. I'm like, this is, this is what it's supposed to be like. This is how we're supposed to interact with one another and eat with one another and, and gather with one another. And I started thinking about, you know, if someone didn't know Jesus but came to that dinner, they would feel like, oh, I need to be a part of this. And I started thinking, like, that's a freeing way to live. I felt like, in my fullest humanity during this meal. There was just something about it. It was this beauty about how we're supposed to be interacting, this breaking of bread together, this, this recentering of our life on Jesus. But this idea about eating together, um, and Jesus talks about this at one point in Luke 22 that we'll look at where uh, we, you might see it in your uh, Bibles, talk about like the Lord's Supper um, or something, or, or a title in that manner, and, or the final supper, or something like that right before his death. But uh, there is this moment in uh, the book of Exodus that when we take communion or the Eucharist, uh, it's built off this really large story uh, in the book of Exodus. And you guys know what story that is? Remember? When Jesus does what, or when um, God like protects the Israelites and he passes over people in Exodus? It's this powerful story. And that story is in the, even the book of Exodus in and of itself is really about liberation and freedom. 
but there's something uh, we all love is, is this idea of liberation freedom, but there's something even bigger going on in the story that's actually incredibly pivotal for us to understand what it means to actually to commune with one another, to experience freedom, to begin to see our own story and the fullness of our humanity. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. It's Genesis and Exodus. And uh, we come up on this story at, at where the Israelites, God's chosen people, have been enslaved uh, who, who are they enslaved by? Anyone know? Pharaoh, Pharaoh right? All right, so Pharaoh is a, a common person in this story. There's more than one Pharaoh in the story. All right, so sometimes people think it's all the same Pharaoh. It's not. It's multiple Pharaohs in the story. Um, and uh, Pharaoh is more, does that name Pharaoh is more about, uh, about the king and about the empire and about like a, a certain kind of type of person, okay? And we, we end up learning that Pharaoh has this hard heart. And God tries to do a bunch of things to get his attention, but he has this hard heart. And in that, he enslaves people, he oppresses people, he creates this kingdom, basically, that celebrated the death of children, all right, whether that was in the womb or like just out of the womb, they were celebrating the death of children as he had this genocide going on. They celebrated violence um, and the victories, and it was about war and everything, and they, and they celebrated other things. Uh, that that uh, empire, the Egyptian empire, was celebrating the oppression of people and, and an economic system that oppressed different kinds of people. And, and what we begin to see is, is even in that instance, it's like God's like saying, hey, let me give you an example of what hardened hearts look like in an empire. And let me tell you how I want to deal with it. And so it's this fascinating story because, man, the people of God are enslaved by all of this and, 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 and being hurt by all of it and they're being killed by it and their kids are being killed. And then you have this empire that's celebrating all of these things. And God steps in. And then there's this part of the story uh, where you, you may have known, um, you may have known this in Exodus chapter 5, uh, verse 1. It says this, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. What does he say? Let my people go. All right. If I were to ask you to sing that, this is going to be a test. That's my bomb. But if I were going to ask you to sing that phrase, let my people go, on the count of three, I just want you to do it how you think you should sing it. All right. On the count of three, one, two, three. Nah, yeah, some of you got it. Some of you got it. Like, there's, like, if you kind of been around it, it's like typically everyone drops a couple of octaves and goes, let my people go, right? Anyway, so it's like this cultural phenomenon with just that phrase. We were, we were talking about it in the office this week. And we're like, where did we get this from? And so we were kind of researching it. But um, it's this idea of like, let my people go. We love the idea of freedom. And a ton of people know that verse. How many guys have heard let my people go before? Okay, you almost don't have to have any recognition or knowledge of the Bible to remember that part of the verse, right? It's kind of this cultural phenomenon of a phrase. Because why? Because we love freedom. Here's the other part of the verse that everyone seems to forget. It says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival. And all this is here is worship. Worship me in the wilderness. Now, hold on. We don't like that. We're like, yes, let my people go. And God says, let my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. How many guys have prayed, God set me free from this and put me in the wilderness? Now, that doesn't happen, right? It's set me free and let me flourish. Set me free and let me be who I'm supposed to be. Set me free in this way. But what God says is, no, 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 hey, let my people go so that they will worship me in the wilderness. 
We don't like that part of the story, but what God is trying to actually do is trying to get them to understand that it will be in the wilderness that you'll discover real freedom. It'll be in your wilderness that you'll discover who you're designed to be and how you be fully free and fully human. It's like in the wilderness. That's where it happens. It feels better when everything's working out and it's all good. And we love those moments and we should celebrate those moments. But what the story is like, Nah, to experience real freedom, to experience the fullness of your humanity is actually to learn to trust God in the wilderness, that that's where it happens, that's where it changes. And so as the story goes, uh, as I said earlier, that Pharaoh has this hardened heart and uh, God responds and he sends these 10 plagues towards uh, Pharaoh to try and get his attention. Now, a really cool part if you're into this stuff is the 10 plagues actually correlate with the creation story. Um, it's this really cool thing how the authors do this. So Genesis and Exodus kind of mirror each other, the whole, whole book. And, and it's really cool. And so he sends these 10 plagues to be like, hey, Pharaoh, come on. He gives chance after chance after chance for Pharaoh to respond. And his heart is so hardened that finally God is like, I can't keep letting you do this. And I've got to respond. And sometimes when you read a passage like this and you, you begin to see how God responds, you can, you can be like, man, why would God respond in this way? Because eventually what he says is, I'm going to kill all the firstborn of the Egyptians. And uh, here's what that actually God is doing in that moment. He is protecting uh, the firstborn who would have been possible future kings. And so what God is doing in that moment, he's like, I need to protect the future. I need to protect all the people from a future, another evil king. And so he takes care of the, the early firstborn or the firstborn. And it seems like, well, there's so many questions with that and it's, it's really hard to like take in and, and I don't have all the answers for it. But in that moment, God responds. And he responds to Pharaoh and he's like, here's the deal. I'm coming. And because of your hardened heart and because of what you've been doing to people, like I've got to respond in some kind of way because I've got to protect people. Um, I've got to set them free. And, 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 and on the story, when we first hear it, it's like, yes, God comes in. And yes, the people are free. But then again, they go into the wilderness. It doesn't seem to make sense. But it's in that is where we discover real freedom. So in the story in Exodus chapter 12, here's what it, God says. It says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods, that's interesting, of Egypt. Because why? I am the Lord. So what God's doing here, he's like, he's saying, this isn't about just a response to a human and Pharaoh and evil and oppression that we see out of an empire. He's like, I'm actually going to judge and respond to all the gods so here's what he's saying in this moment. Like we pass over things like this in scripture all the time. But here's what the writer is saying, that this wasn't just a, a, an event for just humanity. This is a cosmic event that's happening as well. He's saying, that, hey, in the spiritual realm, God's like, I'm going to do something there too. And so it's, it's, it's humanity, but he's like, but I'm also going to respond spiritually in the spiritual realm of all the gods. I know, it feels like a lot to take in. But like, that's what he's saying in this passage. It's like, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so he says, here's what you need to do. All my people, here's what I want you to do. Um, I'm going to save you and protect you. This idea of passing over is this idea of protecting. And so I'm going I'm to save you. And here's what you need to do. You need to put the blood of a, a spotless lamb like on your doorframe, 
And when, when I see this, like I'm gonna pass over you so you're not gonna get hurt by what's happening. Okay, and so he gives them instructions on, on how to do this. And so um, we get into this, and again, there's this cosmic element, this personal element to the story and God's engagement. And then he continues on in verse 23, and he says, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer. It's like, man, this is, hold on a second, the destroyer. It's like, yeah, it's like, you might have heard the phrase, like, maybe the angel of death, right? If they were, if they were performing this, this would be like the dun-dun-dun, like, like, sign, right? And so, so we think about it, it's like, he will not permit the what? Destroyer. Bam, bam, bam. Like, you feel like the, it's like the weight of this story to enter your houses and strike you down. And so even in this moment, what we're seeing is like, man, what God's going to do here, and there's a lot to this whole destroyer thing, um, but what God's going to do is he's like, I'm protecting my people. But eventually what ends up happening when there's so much evil and there's so much oppression and there's so many things and God steps in, he's like, you know, to some degree, your judgment's going to be like, you're just getting what you want. See, if you keep killing people, you keep hurting people, you keep living a life that's against me, eventually what God does, he's like, I can't keep allowing you to do this because your heart is so hardened. And so the judgment's going to be like, I've been holding back these forces cosmically for a long time. But you know what? I'm just going to step back here because you just won't get it. I know. This doesn't, aren't grace passages a lot easier, right? But this is a reality that we see all over the Bible. And Jesus will actually do, he'll, he'll, he'll relate himself to this story here in just a second. He's like, so... I'm going to do this. And then the story is, is like the people go out. This happens. He protects his people. And then the Israelites are set free into the wilderness. And then it begs this question right here. We want God to set us free, but are we willing to trust him in the wilderness? You see, you'll never actually be free. You'll never actually be fully human until you're willing to trust God in the wilderness. The times when you thought you'd never get sick. The times you never thought you would lose someone or a job or the time where you feel like, man, I thought my life was gonna go in this direction, but it's gone in this other direction. The times where you feel like maybe you were all alone. The, the times you, you felt like, man, I don't understand why other people are, are prospering and, and, and I'm not. It's like in the times of, of feeling like in the wilderness, do you still trust God in it? When you trust God in the wilderness is actually when we experience the most freedom. See, it's easy when the Israelites got into the wilderness, in the beginning they trusted God because they would always remember this story. And that's part of the Passover meal. It's like remembering the story, remembering the story, remember the story. Um, we do these things called Deuteronomy dinners here. And, and what the premise is like, hey, we want to keep telling the story of how God has provided, keep telling the story of how God has moved in our lives. And, and we want to keep doing that over and over and over again because we want to talk about what it means to be free and fully human and that we're part of God's story, right? This is my story. This is my song, right? Talk about the freedom to declare that we're free in Christ. But we do that by telling the story over and over and over again. And this is what the Jewish people, the Israelites started doing at this time and they still do today. They keep going back, tell the story, tell the story, tell the story. What's fascinating is you have this moment where God sets his people free. And so he saves his people by grace, right? He didn't save them by anything. He saves them by grace in this moment. 
And he steps in and then he does something interesting. He's like, I'm going to save you by grace, but I'm also going to give you a way to live. In Exodus 19, uh, uh, they go up to Mount Sinai and then they, and God gives these things called the 10 what? Commandments, right? And, uh, you know, it's just 10 and, and we probably all know like four of them or five of them. Um, but it's, it's, he gives them this, this way to live, this way to, to live free. And God's like, hey, remember the story of what I brought you out of. I want you to remember this story of my grace and my power and how I loved you so dearly and I set you free. I gave you a way out of slavery. I gave you a way out of regret. I gave you a way out of, of how to live like in kind of the, the antithesis of, of how I desired. I gave you a way out and set you free. But here's how I want you to live. And so he gives people these commandments in Exodus chapter 19. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. He's reminding them. He says, how he carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you do what? Obey me fully. How many of you are good at partial obedience? Yeah, all of us to some degree, right? He says, and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you guys know your Bible, you know this, this language comes out in 1 Peter again, right? It's, this is where it all comes from. That you'll be my, this holy priest, the priesthood of all believers. Like you'll be my holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites, meaning to continuously talk about this. This is like part I want ingrained in our community is like, there's something like when we want to obey fully the realities of who God is, we live free, we become fully human, we become the part of this holy nation set apart for God. I don't know about you all, but is there a greater way to live our life to be set apart for God? I think within all of us, Ecclesiastes talks about having eternity in our hearts. And what that means is like we're all designed in this deep desire to be connected to the reality of who God is, our maker. Like, I don't know of anyone personally, I'm not saying there aren't people out there, personally that's like, man, I love being set apart for myself. Because that is the answer to all. It doesn't even make sense to do that. But man, here's God saying, you can be set apart for me, my people, the priests, the holy nation, where we can experience real freedom and the fullness of who God is. So do you want to trust that the way God wants us to live will actually set us free? Do you trust that the way God wants us to live will actually set us free? See, little simple questions like that. Um, I believe most of us in the room would say like, yeah, 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 I do. But isn't it funny? Like, then why don't we do it? We don't actually, well, a lot of us, we, we believe, man, to live after the way God wants us to live and to obey is to really live in freedom. And we believe that and we say that and we really do. But isn't it funny? We all, all of us, man, quite frequently we're like, I believe it, but I don't, just, I don't do it. And this is the wrestling, this is the tension that we live in. Right? And we got to stay sensitive to these things of, of where this might be. Well, here's what Jesus does. And this is why the story of Jesus is so amazing. Jesus comes in and he flips the script of this whole entire story. So 
hundreds and hundreds of years of this story being repeated over and over and over again. It's like the Passover meal. And they're like, remember when God like delivered the people out of Egypt? Remember when he gave them the Ten Commandments? Remember how he taught them to live? I mean, over and over again. Never forget, never forget, never forget, never forget. And Jesus steps in with this meal with the disciples and he's like, never forget that story because that story points to me. And Jesus flips this whole script. Now, this is like, one of the things when people are like, man, Jesus really made people mad a lot. This was one of the reasons because he took a story that a whole grouping of people wholeheartedly believe in and shaped their entire being of what it meant to live free and what it meant to be human and to know the grace and love of God. And in that moment, Jesus says, this is a wonderful story that you all know. And let me tell you something, it points to me. He says this in Luke chapter 30, uh, 22. He says, and he took bread. Here we go. It's the same like, language that you see in Acts. It's the same thing that they did in, in the Passover meal. He says, he took bread. He gave thanks and broke it. He gave it to them saying that this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And he's like, Remember how they, they put on the door frame the blood to say, this is going to protect you. He's like, oh, no, no, let me just tell you something. It's like my blood up on the cross that's going to protect you. That's going to deliver you. That's going to save you. That's going to keep you uh, from the reality of the destroyer, which is sin. And he's like, this, is, this story is about me. Jesus like, this story about real freedom is, is through me. And I'm going to be your protector. My life on the cross and resurrection is going to be what saves. In verse 25, he says to them, he says, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, so you get this, he's telling them the story of Exodus is like, saved by grace. This is my blood, everything else, right? And then what did God do with the Israelites? He then gave them the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus is doing the same thing. He's like, let me tell you about the story of freedom. Let me tell you about the blood, my blood. Let me tell you about this covenant and this promise I'm making with you. And then he, he flips on them right there. And he's like, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. What is he doing? He's giving them the way to live. It's like, this is what sets you free. It's like for who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And so he's like, man, in the wilderness, you guys stood by me. In this, and I'm telling you, like, if you want to be free, like, this is how you live. You want to be fully human. This is what you do. You see me in this story and understand who I am he continues on in verse 53. I just want to show you this little nugget. He says, when I was with you, so they're, they're about to kill him at this point and arrest him. And Jesus looks at the religious teachers at the time and he says this, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And so Jesus has even taken the Exodus story in this moment. When I, remember when I said earlier, it was about this cosmic event. Jesus in this moment, he has the entire Exodus story is in this moment. He's like, I'm going to save you by grace with my blood. And that's what's going to protect you. I'm going to uh, deliver you out of the destroyer and protect you from all this so you can be set free. He's like, and here's what's going to happen. I am coming after the cosmic element as well. 
He's like, you guys never laid a hand on me, but at this point in time, this is your hour, right, of deception. This is what he's saying, like, that happened to the Egyptians. And he's like, and he said before, I'm going to come after all the gods in Egypt, and here's what he's saying here. This is your hour in the power of darkness. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming after them too. And so this cross and the resurrection isn't just about, like, ooh, he died and rose again. It's a wonderful story. But my gosh, when you start seeing like, oh, here's what he's doing. He's like, no, this is like the story. This is about freedom. This is about a cosmic story that's going on. This is about the fullness of our humanity. What it means to be free. So let's go to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Um, and Laura, you can come up. 1 Corinthians is the, so the church has started and they have these feasts together. As I said earlier, um, and we'd take communion together or the Eucharist together. And we'd get together and they would say, hey, remember the story. And they said, remember the story. Remember, like, man, what God did. Remember the story of Exodus. Remember what Jesus talked about? And they would do this. They would, they would sit around and they would do this. This was a reminder, right? They were, they were facing great persecution. They were in the wilderness. They were always, and they remember the story. And they would keep telling the story over and over and over again. And then Paul gets this point in 1 Corinthians and he goes through and it's a familiar chapter and, and uh, if you've been in church and, and he talks about, hey, remember to do this in remembrance of Jesus. Remember his death, like do this in remembrance of Jesus. But there's this, there's this part in 1 Corinthians that no one ever reads because Paul addresses the people who forgot the story and they started cheapening God's grace. They started cheapening the story. That they were people who were using the story for their own benefit. They were people who had just simply decided, I'm going to go my own way. I want to take the idea of freedom and salvation from Jesus, but I want to make it my own. And Paul says, that's just not how this works. And so he, he says these words. In the same time saying, you got to remember Jesus. But let me give you a little point of conviction. He says this. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. That's not the fun part of taking communion, is it? You see, what Paul's doing in this moment, and it's like, this is like, like this is like an upper, uppercut, right? Because he's, he's stepping in here. He's like, you know why you're weak? You know why some of you are sick? Because you decided to live your own way. And you're, you're, you're hurting yourself. You, you know why you're not experiencing the freedom of this message of Jesus? is because you decided to just kind of go about this your own way. Uh, you, you've got a hardened heart. You approach uh, the sacredness of what is to this remembrance of Christ's body and his blood. And we approach it like flippantly. And, and it's about being free. 
Like we're going to sing in a second about being death was arrested, right? It's, it's about this freedom, this grace, being fully human. It's like, but some of you, have, you've forgotten. You're presented with this thing to, to cause you to remember the reality and the truth of the story. You decide, I'm just going to go my own way on this. That's not living free. That's just living for yourself. So Paul puts before us, hey, don't ever make this act of communion a habit. Don't ever try and take this story from Jesus and make it about you. Don't twist the message about what it means to, man, that the, the greatest should be the servants. When we have a moment like this to gather together, and we take and hold these communion elements in our hand, that this is a moment where we're, what we're actually doing is like, oh, let me remember this story of freedom. Let me examine my heart. And is there anywhere that's, honestly, that I've gotten a little hardened in my heart? And let me just put this before God, before I take. Because I believe that, man, this story of Jesus does set me free. I believe this story of Jesus can take my hardened heart and soften it. And there is not a person in this room who shouldn't do this. There's not a person in this room who, who doesn't have an element of maybe a slightly hardened heart in some kind of way. So this is all of us together with humility approaching the creator and saying, let me remember this story that you've always placed before us and treat this the way that we should. So I'm going to ask you guys uh, to take out your communion cups. If you, if you need one, just raise your hand. Um, you, you do not feel pressured to take communion. If you don't want to, no one's going to judge you. Like you can just sit there quietly. It's all good. But I want you to open this up and take out the elements and hold them in your hand. A couple hands back there, one over here and in the back too. So I just want you to hold the bread and hold the juice. And I want you to take a deep breath in and slowly out. And I just want you to just spend a moment with God and examining your heart.
God, these, um, this bread and this juice that we hold in our hands, this is a sacred moment, meaning it's set apart for you. This is about remembering how we could be set free, remembering what it means to be fully human, remembering what it means to trust you in the wilderness. But it's also making us remember to never take you lightly, call us back to you. And so, um, God, this bread represents your body being broken for us. And in the midst of those wilderness moments, in the midst of feeling suffering and pain, that you're with us every step of the way. So go ahead and eat the bread. And this juice, which represents your blood upon that cross and the establishment of a new covenant, one that talks about your protection, one that about forgiveness of sin, one that gives us ultimate hope in the reality of who you are so that we can be free, so that we can be fully human. Go ahead and drink the juice. So God, in the hardened areas of our hearts, may we feel a deep conviction because we want to be free. Because the words of the song that we're about to sing about death being arrested, about, oh, your grace so free washing over us that allows us to boldly proclaim, I'm free, I'm free. That is only true because of the reality of who you are. And so I pray that we will never, ever become desensitized to that reality so we can live free as a community and the holy nation you designed us to be. In your name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Will you stand and sing this last song with us?